This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 20th, 2019, the Keep America, oh, forget it, edition. I'm David <laughs> Plotz of Atlas Obscura. That was John Dickerson kindly snuffling chuckling of 60 Minutes in New York. <laughs> Hello, John. Uh, hi, Snuffle Chuckle. <clears throat> that's my um, that's my street name. That's your that's your screen name. I think <laughs> Snuffle <laughs> Chuckle. You could go um, far with that forum name. You frequent. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, Snoop Snuffle Chuckle was. Uh, it was a limited pressing of a twelve-inch album, but it was very popular in certain circles. <laughs> On. Uh, the other speaker there is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale. Hello, Emily. Hello. And you're in New Haven, I guess. I'm in I'm New guessing. Haven. Don't even so know. So true. On today's GabFest, I always thought President Trump would be like James K. Polk. He would just have four years and be like, I've accomplished everything <laughs> I want to accomplish and, and step aside gently from office. But apparently I was wrong. He has launched his reelection campaign. What a surprise. How did that launch go? And was it really his launch? Truly. Then Emily has just written the definitive profile of Senator Elizabeth Warren, the surging, the rising Democratic presidential candidate. We will assess her campaign and the state of the Democratic race. Then Harvard has revoked the admission of a student, a Parkland shooting survivor and conservative gun rights activist after his racist texts and chats were revealed. Was that a right or wrong move on Harvard's behalf? And what import does this this micro scandal have. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and a reminder that we are coming to Canada on Wednesday, July 10th. We're going to be in Toronto at the Kerner Hall, the Telus Center for Performance and Learning. And there's still tickets available for that show. Go to slate.com slash live. We're really looking forward to it. We anticipate we anticipate uh, fireworks, uh, sort of July 4th style fireworks, which we'll bring to Canada. Well, please join us in Toronto on July 10th. President Trump launched his re-election campaign with a rally in an Orlando arena this week. It's perhaps more accurate to say he re-re-re-relaunched his campaign since he has been announcing campaign launches and announcing his 2020 campaign repeatedly, even unto his inauguration day when he filed for re-election. He literally on January 20th, 2017, filed re-election papers. Uh, but his campaign rally in Orlando had all the greatest hits, uh, including the Keep America Great 
slogan, which will now replace the Make America Great Again slogan, offering a chance for a whole new line of KAG merchandise that people can buy. So, John, as this campaign starts, it's basically four years after he came down that escalator in kind of a metaphor for the hellish descent, which we have all endured ever since then. Uh, How does President Trump look as a presidential candidate? How we obviously have a strong economy. He still has low favorability ratings. How does he how does his his chances appear to be to you? It's too early to know. We do have a strong economy, but obviously he's uh, one of the things, ways in which he's changed the what used to be known as traditional politics is he's delinked his approval from people's approval about the economy. So uh, his approval numbers are, I think, in the low 40s. They're awful compared to the way people think about the economy, which is uh, people think the economy is doing quite well. And that usually uh, is the, one of the great predictors of success in a re-election So we don't know. He doesn't have a really direct opponent yet. He's trying to create one. We saw in in this uh, rally, you know, he went after the Democrats and said they were threatening your way of life. This is a this is a kind of holding pattern until he can claim that the Democratic nominee is threatening your way of life. But obviously, this is a part of the playbook to try to take advantage of negative partisanship, which political scientists have shown that people were more motivated by their hatred for the other side in voting in 2016 than they were support for their own side. So this is uh, an effort to, to uh, create a, a, a really frothy, constant bogeyman, which is why David Graham in The Atlantic was right when he said this wasn't a relaunch because he's never stopped campaigning. President Trump has has really perfected that um, with a kind of base only presidency. He ran a kind of he ran a base only um, uh, campaign. Has run a base only presidency. Um, his major achievement passed through the, the Senate with only Republican votes, and his policies that he's or what he's done as president has been really aimed towards his base. And 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 I guess the 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 question is um, one of the things that struck me, and this will be my last point, that about you know he he has he is repetitious. He goes back and goes after Hillary Clinton, and and the, the speeches all have the same. Um, quality to them. And FDR once said, you know, that basically people can't uh, stand somebody who's constantly always playing on the highest note in the register. And his point was basically about moral uh, things that a president couldn't bang on forever or people would get sick of it. I think that was in a different time when the idea of presidential persuasion, which some uh, say was always a, a fake idea anyway, but that you could gather people from both sides around a common argument used with reason and and so forth. I think what President Trump is doing and was successful doing in 2016 is he's not trying to do that. He's trying to keep one group of people constantly on the boil. And so where you used to throw in red meat in a speech, it's now basically full butcher shop. Um, and so uh, we're going to see whether that works. But I think um, it's a pattern that we've been seeing for a, for a long time. Actually, that's that's exactly the point I want to dig into next, Emily. It's full butcher shop. Uh, maybe full abattoir would be a more uh, truer term there. So this campaign rally, we it was so reminiscent of the the spectacle we grew used to four years ago. But even though it was his first one, even though it's ostensibly, you know, this one which is which is where he's launching and thus you would think would be trying to reach out to the broadest group of people, it was even more emphatic, more vicious about the press, more more violent in rhetoric. What, what do you think that the, the implications are of him having to go to 11 
all the time now, and that the, basically people are so used to him at being at an eight, uh, but they need more. That 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 they're like drug addicts, where the where this where the initial dose that used to get them high no longer gets them high, and so he has to has to constantly amp it up. And is that how is that going to wear? Do you think, Emily? I'm not sure how it's going to wear. I mean, we're so far out, and the race is going to tighten, and there are going to be news events that are going to intervene. And also the the actual identity of the person he's running against is going to change the shape of the race because then that person will become the target. But I understand why Trump thinks this is the way to go. I mean, so first of all, he hasn't been capable of having a different kind of register, right? He feeds mm-hmm. off the crowd. It is addictive. And people watch for the spectacle. And some people are hate watching, but a lot of people feel like there's this sense of, you know, tribal belonging and like that he's their guy. And I think that he, his political instincts may be correct here, that especially at this point in the um, cycle, he can't let those people go. He does not want to bore them. Maybe that's the thing above all else that he cares about right now. And it doesn't look like a particularly broad appeal. On the other hand, Matthew Cottonetti wrote a piece in the New York Times um, on the op-ed page this week that I've been something that I've been thinking about that Trump is part of this global trend toward right-wing populism or economic populism meaning like someone who's promising to be a man of the people a leader of the people now in Trump's case he hasn't really delivered that effectively right and actually i think in another piece Paul Krugman made this point and there's a sort of bill of particulars like the tax breaks were for rich people and the tariffs are hurting ordinary consumers and you can go down the list but that doesn't mean that people don't that Trump's base don't still feel like he has their back and that he's gotten something from them even if it's not economic deliverables. And so I think he's offering that kind of emotional sense of like your enemy is my enemy, enemy, Mm -hmm. I'm with you. And that right now, like that's the place to start. I would add just two things. One, you know, it's it's always an identity-based pitch. So the the way in which the economy works and doesn't work with Trump always has to, it seems to me, be seen through the identity push and pull of his electorate first. So people have said, um, well, the non-college educated white voters who are uh, d- deep in the in the Trump camp have told Fox News in a poll that they think uh, while the economy is doing better, all of the rewards are flowing to the rich. And so that is the the first building block on an, of an argument that says, well, they're going to abandon Trump. I don't I don't think they'll abandon him at all. It's a values. He's our guy kind of um, support for him. And so while they intellectually totally may say that. You. Well, yeah, so that's that's the uh, but the the second thing that I left out of my first answer, which is basically absolutely crucial, is, you know, one of the benefits that that he had in 2016 is there were a group of suburban Republican voters who found him thoroughly objectionable uh, on a number of different fronts, but who, because of the Supreme Court and also their antipathy towards Hillary Clinton, nevertheless uh, voted for for President Trump. A lot of those people have left him. Uh, and absent Hillary Clinton um, won't have a reason to be so appalled by the other side uh, that they'll vote for him. Also, he was, uh, there was a feeling among those kinds of voters that, well, he, the office might change him. Everybody's pretty clear on, on the, the verdict of that. Mm-hmm. So those voters are the ones that he needs to add to his base in order to to win, and those are the kinds of voters who would be turned off 
perhaps by the full butcher shop or full abattoir or whatever you want, not because they haven't seen that before in politics, but because what essentially the country is being asked to sign up for is four more years of that, four more years of this kind of steady, frantic national thing we have going on that's stirred up by the, so often by the president. So historically, John, there's this notion, I think, that incumbent presidents who are running without opponents, that this is a difficult situation to be in. They're not getting tested in the way they're going to need to be tested for the general election. They're not going to, they're, they're going to be rusty by the time the general election comes around, whereas the whereas their opponents who are facing a, a grueling primary and constantly having to debate, I mean, they are getting beaten up. They're, these Democrats will get beaten up and they will not have as much money, but that they're that they're somehow uh, training hard for this this Iron Man uh, run that they're going to have in in late 2020. Do you think that applies to Trump? Does the fact that Trump is not going to have any debates, he's, there's not going to be any policy discussions, there's not going to be him uh, sort of having to defend himself against whatever it is that you know John Kasich might be saying about him from the Republican Party is going to matter and going to make him a weaker general election candidate than he might be were he getting a uh, test. I mean, I he really liked the 2016 primary. Yeah. He enjoyed that a lot. Uh, I think actually the opposite challenge may uh, be one he faces. And then I have a, p- a point about policy, which we'll mostly leave for the Warren discussion. But I think the opposite policy, the opposite thing he faces is this, is that he, in permanent campaign mode and in a life that is permanent attack counterpunch, I mean, he was campaigning long before he ever thought about running for president in the sense that he is a brass knuckles brawler. And we in American life have, uh, in American elections, allowed for that. So you have even the most patrician, restrained president um, in George Herbert Walker Bush ran what was, at the time, considered one of the meanest, ugliest races in the modern political era in 1988, in which not only did we have Willie Horton, but in which there was a systematic effort by Roger Ailes and Leah Atwater, and systematic in the sense that they drew out an outline at the very beginning and said, we are going to so dismantle Michael Dukakis by claiming that he is other and un-American that we will make him so objectionable because Bush had a little bit of a ceiling to him. So we can't raise up our guy. We're going to shred the other guy. And they were incredibly effective. And basically, uh, Dukakis said, I'm going to be restrained. And the country said, that's nice. We're going to elect the other guys. So there's been a a history where people have allowed presidents to um, or candidates to kind of do what it takes to get elected. And then in the kind of it all changes when they become president. In, In Trump's case, he's always done what it takes. The problem is when he was asked if he would use stolen information from another country. He basically responded as a political guy would. Of course I would, because it will help me win. The problem is he has a different obligation as a commander-in-chief, right? His job is to protect the country. So if a crime has been committed by a foreign adversary, in this case Russia, an adversary that's listed as one of the top threats to America next to China, and you say, yeah, I might take what they have, this is somebody who's giving you what they have as a way to destroy America. And so your obligation as a president is to sublimate your own personal self-interest and act in the country's interest. So you're, that is your job, okay? So that's where it seems to me his landmines are, which is that in a public forum where the two candidates are face-to-face in a debate, that he could fall into, into that trap more than the he'll be rusty because he doesn't, you know, have, uh, hasn't been having, working out with a sparring partner. Emily, um, Trump fired a bunch of his pollsters this week after a series of internal polls leaked showing him behind Democrats and in various ways. The thing that that made me think about was 
that one of the, the dangers I think Trump may face is that he may find himself in a bubble, in a, in a space of delusion. In 2016, none of it really mattered. They didn't think they were going to win or only a few people thought they were going to win. They were running. They were just they were running from from joy and glee and they were having a great time doing it. And none of it mattered. I wonder if finding himself in a in a campaign where he hit the information he's getting and the information. I mean, it's a it's a it's an it's an imperial court. And there's clearly people do not tell him anything that he doesn't want to hear. So do you think that that is a risk to his campaign? I mean, either of you. That's a question for either of you. John, that's also a question for you. Okay. But Emily, you hit it. I mean, I think it's all always a really bad sign when people around you can't be honest with you and don't want to give you bad news. But this is how Trump's been operating the whole time, and it has not sunk him yet, right? So, like, until it does, it's just hard to say that this is the fatal flaw. John, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's generally – I think that makes general sense. Um, uh, I also think he probably has – better instincts than anybody around him and and that he can't be swayed from those instincts anyway. So I think that the, that it's not the fatal flaw that it normally would be. You know, his genius may be that he understands something about political communication that people have not yet caught up to. You know, we'll see where we are after Election Day. But he certainly has used chaos in, in a way that um, keeps the press world and political world totally on its heels while he, through either judges or through uh, removal of regulations or through just not enforcing a lot of regulations that are uh, or laws that are on the books, has made real and big and sweeping changes in American life, all of which are, are occluded and, and, and even if they're covered, don't get noticed because of the constant um, circus-like atmosphere that he's created, which... Um, a keeps his supporters in line with him, and if we if we're in base only elections, that's not a terrible thing to do. B it distracts everyone, so he doesn't get the kind of um, attention that might uh, slow or wake up members of Congress to the progress he's making through um, through the executive branch. So it may be the case in twenty years that people look back and say, "Wow, this was he really hacked the the existing system in a way that was beneficial to his self interest." And I feel like this week we're seeing that in this discussion about immigration, right? So there's this fear that there are going to be these huge raids. He's talked about deporting, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands of people. This is not something that the government is really set up to do. And yet that fear is going to ripple out. It's going to have an effect on immigrants. It's going to have an effect on his base, whether he delivers or not. There will be this sense that he promised that this was going to happen. And then if it doesn't happen, he'll say that the news media is misreporting it, right? There'll be all that confusion Mm -hmm. and destabilizing. And then in the meantime, we have Trump's EPA issuing a new rule that's going to allow coal coal producing plants to continue operating with fewer regulations, more emissions, ignoring its own report about you know, all these premature deaths that are associated with the um, matter that's going to be emitted as a result of all of this. And like that will be it will just get much less news like it will just kind of get buried and we'll be talking about immigration, which in terms of a subject is just better for Trump. His his goal is is not just to keep his own uh, team fired up, which is definitely one of his goals. And whenever he's talking about immigration, even if he's being fact checked, the other thing is he's baiting 
Democrats, liberals, with everything that he does because he needs this second piece. And that second piece is that the Democratic Party becomes so objectionable that those suburban voters uh, say, uh, well, wow, I can't, you know, I can't vote for the socialist. Now, the word socialism has been thrown around since, you know, for the last 70 years in uh, against Democrats. So it's, that's not exactly new, but at the moment it's it's one of the lines of attacks. So the idea is to do something that 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 causes Demo- to, uh, to get Democrats to overreach in such a way that he then has something he can show those voters and say, see, they are truly objectionable. All right, last question on this. It's about us. Let's talk about us. So I read a number. I, I didn't dig into the fact checking, so I'm not 100% sure if it's true. But the number I read was 500, which is the number of journalists at the Trump rally in Orlando, which is a staggering number. That's monstrous. Now, keep in mind, yes, it was a campaign launch, but it was basically him doing what everyone knew he was going to do. This bread, circuses, gladiators, lions slayed, surfs bodies dead on the ground. Spectacle. What is the responsibility of the media with this campaign do, do, you know, I think there was a lot of self-recrimination among journalists after 2016 that there were, that they, the coverage of Trump was, was too credulous. It was too gleeful about the spectacle. Uh, but, you know, how or how <laughs> it looks like, looks like we're right back there. Yeah, totally. It's depressing. I mean, the wall-to-wall TV coverage. And the thing is, it's the liberal networks as well as Fox, right? I mean, MSNBC, I'm not that that big a TV watcher, but my sense when I look at it is like it's equally obsessed. Like the, if you're condemning what's happening, you're also f- constantly following the bright, shiny object. I don't know. I, maybe this is just my instinct, and John, you can tell me I'm wrong, to blame the part of the media that I'm not in. But I feel like it's TV journalism that has the most work to do in terms of, you know, still these roundtables, which are like people just spouting partisan nonsense, and then just the wall-to-wall coverage of the rallies. Like, they have to figure out a way to temper that and yet like it seems that they've made a decision based on the market of the ratings that you know this all still plays well although i guess this time cnn did cut away is that right mm-hmm. uh, i don't know how much it mattered i think everything you said i think everything you say um uh is right there's a huge burden on the broadcast media and on well on all of us and on and and then also on us as voters and consumers in social media because the the constant suckle on outrage isn't doing us any good either uh whatever side you're on the role of the i think in this specific case david it is fascinating that that many people turned out and not being blind to the connection the president has with with his voters and what that says mostly about the country and about what people are feeling. Um, and we'll talk about this with Elizabeth Warren because one of the things she talks about is that, you know, the Trump hit on a sense of unfairness in the country that his his voters are reacting to. I think that political scientists would say, well, yes, but it's there's a lot of identity in that and it's not so much economic. It has to do with basically the changing color of America and the changing norms and values in America, American life that some people are reacting to. So it's not purely about economics or maybe even not half about economics. So I think it's interesting to pay attention to that as a sign in a changing country in a moment of of roiling. Uh, however, as the broad 
thing. It seems to me that our biggest job is to say, what are the biggest problems in America and what are the people elected to deal with those problems doing about it? In the past, you could assume that covering a president was engaging in that job because presidents looked at the biggest problems in America and tackled them in some kind of rational fashion using their um, using their job and their convening power and all of that to tackle the country's biggest problems. If that's not what the the president is doing because he's running a, a perhaps incredibly shrewd kind of base only presidency that focuses on on immigration almost to the exclusion of everything else, that's obviously I'm exaggerating for effect. But is if using your reason you can look at this presidency and say, okay, it is it is misshapen and the priorities are misaligned then there is no obligation to, to to cover only those misaligned priorities. The obligation seems to me is to look at the country and its challenges and those that can be ameliorated by the collective action of government and then say which of the people who have the power and or running to get the power are talking about these issues. And if they're not talking about them, then they should be. Then you have some other things you need to do. Talk to voters, see what they care about, which is quite important, but isn't the only thing in terms of what our job is. So... Um, kind of keeping the conversation back to the most important challenges, whether people think it's inequality or China or uh, threat from terrorism or a trade or global or climate change, whatever it is, and then find out whether the candidates have actual answers for them. Um, and that should be the thing against which we're all measured at the end of this process. Slate Plus members, you're so lucky. You're such lucky people. You're not lucky, but you've you've paid for your good fortune by your Slate Plus membership. In any case, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. You get bonus segments on other Slate podcasts. You get all kinds of other stuff from Slate. And this week, we have a bonus segment for Slate Plus members where we will go deep on how Emily reported her magisterial Elizabeth Warren story. I'd just like to say magisterial you know, I know, not, just for like, the heck of it, whether it's the right adjective or not, it's a it's good not one. exactly Gibbons. Gibbons fall fall of the Roman Empire, but it's really it's a really good story. <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> anyway, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to get the inside dope on Emily's story and to become a member today. Keep up with the 2020 race with Slate's new weekly newsletter, The Surge, written by Slate political reporter Jim Newell. The Surge will provide weekly rankings of the 2020 presidential candidates, both Democratic and Republican, based on who's having the most eventful week for better and for worse. In compiling these rankings, The Surge will factor in polling and consider whose policy proposals are changing the conversation this week. It will also employ advanced quantitative analytics, such as Jim Newell's gut and which candidates offer the most joke opportunities. The first edition hits inboxes Friday, June 21st, so sign up for The Surge today. Go to slate.com slash The Surge to sign up and tell your friends to do the same. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt 
or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Elizabeth Warren is having a banner week. There are huge positive profiles of her in The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine. The Times profile was, of course, written by Emily, a story you should must go read right now. Warren is making steady progress in the polls. She has moved up uh, clearly into the sort of top, uh, the t- into the top three. She and Sanders seem to be tied in, in a second place, significantly behind Joe Biden, but significantly ahead of everybody else. So, Emily, why is she climbing and and from whom is she taking voters or is it are these undecided people who have who have come over to her? I'm not sure we know from whom she's taking voters. I think the obvious theory for why she's climbing is that her sort of um I have a plan for that approach to this campaign where she's putting out these detailed um plans, proposals for all variety of sort of large to medium-sized problems in American life, that among Democratic primary voters, that's taking off. Her support is still strongest among white college-educated liberals. So I think we still have this question about whether she's going to be able to broaden her support from that beginning of a base. But people are excited about her... um, and I think overcoming these initial doubts about whether she was like going to be a player at all. So that was a big change from when I started working on this profile over the winter. And I think a lot of it has to do with this strategy that if you put a lot of ideas out there, the press is going to write about you. And she has certainly been anointed the kind of policy leader in the field. And then your name is out there. And yeah, maybe people aren't the, the the pundits who write about her tend to disagree. Like there's a big debate about her wealth tax. Is it constitutional? Would it work? Would everyone, would all these super wealthy people just avoid it? But they're still talking about her ideas, right? She's sort of setting the standard for the debate. Actually, when I, I, we're going to talk about the, the shape of the this primary race, but I do want to talk about her ideas and and their relevance. So I think one theory is that she's an Overton window shifter and she by putting all these plans out here she has changed the terms of the debate and so when we do get around to these policies she'll have laid down a marker and and it's there's a good chance that what she has outlined will be part of the debate and discussion i would offer a different theory which is that there is no overton window anymore because there's no capacity to t- take plans and make them into law <laughs> and one of the things that i think is a shortcoming about her campaign which i am hugely supportive of and I admire and she you know if I were voting today I would probably vote for her but is that is that the the problem of the non-functioning of government is so profound that it almost makes these policy discussions moot and I wonder if she how is she grappling with the fact that you can't I mean a wealth tax that's really funny I mean like how on earth would you get a wealth tax in past this Senate how on earth would you get a wealth tax past this Supreme Court it just is it's laughable at this moment So how does she talk about that or think about that? 
Well, I think you're, the wealth tax does seem like it has to be legislation. So that battle, you're right, would be fought in Congress. I think that a lot of the other proposals, I, I actually like was going, went through some of them. And some of them you can do through executive power, right? And so then part of her argument is, I know how to pull these levers of government. I'm the person who came up with the idea for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the Obama administration and saw this window of opportunity after the financial crisis to push it through as part of Dodd-Frank, which was the huge legislative overhaul that Congress did pass in 2010. And so that, I think, is her argument. So, like, for example, if you're looking at her proposals to break up the giant tech companies, some of it's a bill, but some of it is enforcement actions through the Justice Department, Mm -hmm. the antitrust lawyers there, or through the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And so you can see a kind of leveraging of executive power through those, like the through the parts of the government that the president controls. What she's essentially saying, this is a perversion of the presidency, is she's basically saying, I'm going to do in the other direction what Trump is quietly doing now, um, which is which is an interesting political argument. It shows us how far we've come from a situation in which Congress is the one who used to handle these kinds of things. But it may be realism. And there's a debate this week about whether Joe Biden's version of the Senate in which people reason together is dead. And therefore, you need someone who is making the kind of case that Warren is. And that I think for her, her policy ideas are people are interested in the specifics, of course. and, uh, and, And that's wonderful. But I think for her, the benefit of her policy focus is that it shows what every candidate wants to show which is a passion and a driving lifetime pursuit of a set of ideas. Um, and uh, the details, shmeetails, what I know is that when it comes to the challenge she's going to face, um, the vibe I'm getting from her policy focus is she wants a reorientation of the inequality in the American system. And she'll always, whether it's through executive action or uh, a fight with Congress, she'll be swinging. And I get that feeling from her by her uh, sort of performance wonkiness, which is um, which I think is quite effective. Every president needs one of those. She chooses to do it on the policy. Other presidents can do it with other means. But I think for her, it's this it's a powerful vector that that is about the specifics of the policy, but really also is about the the importance of the end show of politics. Yeah, that's so it's that's such a good point, John. I think there's this quality that her smartness and her reasonableness and her kind of rigor distract people who might be more less liberal than she is from the quite liberal positions that she's taking and the some occasionally even quite radical positions that she's taking and that it just seems like oh this is just smart reasonable thinking i like that and i like the the force behind it and and less the details of what's in it i actually to that point though emily one one of the things which i learned from your profile which i hadn't known because i'm an ignoramus was that she had been a republican and that basically reality and data seems to have made her switch. And I wonder if you think when when it comes to her as a presidential candidate, whether is there a, and I don't know her well, I'm watcher enough to know, is she a clinical person in that way? And is she going to be able to convey, is this policy passion going to convey in an effective way if she's the nominee against Trump and counteract Trump, do you think? Well, I think she's very data-driven. Like, she is someone who's, you're right, her political identity, she reshaped it based on studying families who were facing bankruptcy and rethinking her ideas about 
fault, right? So she grew up in like red state Oklahoma with parents who hadn't gone to college in a world of, you know, white working class people. They supported FDR, it seems like, but they were pretty apolitical. And then she, in the 80s, says she was registered as an independent in Texas. But she's teaching, like, business law classes, which is, like, the more conservative part of legal academia. And when she fastens on to the idea of studying bankruptcy, the assumption at the time is that people are going on these crazy spending sprees and they're individually at fault for the rising bankruptcy rates. And she says that those are the set of assumptions she went into the research with. And then what she found was that 90% of bankruptcies were linked to a job loss or death or divorce or medical problems. In other words, things that were not, not, those things aren't all outside of people's control, but they're not just about like wanton spending. And so that shift eventually shifts political parties for her, although really not until the mid 90s. It's interesting how long it takes. And yeah, I do think this notion that like I'm speaking from evidence is something that she conveys and then will be and I think that will get across to people whether that's enough is another question you know the thing about the Overton window by the way is that um two things back to the press it's our job to keep the Overton window open if the Overton window is in is uh, consistent with what we think our job is which is to inform people and give a platform for for debates that meet the challenges of the day so that's just one thing to could remind us all of. There's also, it seems to me, and maybe I'm butchering the concept of the Overton window, but there's the Overton window uh, in the campaigns, what's permissible to discuss, what gets discussed on its own terms and not always as a kind of um, way to talk about the horse race. But then there's the Overton window for what's actually possible in politics today. And that's the question you were asking, David, which is the right one, which is if you have a bunch of grand ideas and everybody gets drunk on those ideas and then you get to Washington and you have no theory for how it's going to, any of it's going to happen, or your theory for how it's going to happen is going to further break the system and cause, you know, revolution in the streets because everybody on the other side of you feels like they're being, you know, railroaded into something. That's a really interesting question. And But one interesting thing is if you create one of the theories, um, and this was created by the fact that candidates had to go build their own constituencies when parties died, because parties used to build the constituencies. But one of the theories is you build such a movement for your set of ideas that you change that you change the Overton window or you open the Overton window in Washington because of the movement you created. This is what Obama thought he was going to do. It didn't work because they found basically in the political scientists who looked at this is while you're creating movement on one side, you're also creating a counter movement. And that's that counter movement carried along by media that speaks only to, in this case, conservatives, but there's a liberal uh, view of it as well, calcifies opposition to you. So you, in fact, it, it doesn't work that you can build such a movement on the outside. However, you don't know. And by the way, it would be nice if we got it, it, we got back to that because the fact that it isn't working, this, the idea of representative government at the moment is a huge problem. And the only final point is it seems to me that her biggest challenge is how to turn all of her specificity into a global argument. And this is what Emily's piece is about, a global argument about the inequities in American life and that what she's trying to do is address those um, rather than um, doing some thing that is outside of the American history and American experience, trying to balance things, as she talks about with Teddy Roosevelt and, and FDR, is actually in the American story. But who, whether she gets control of that narrative or somebody else does, will be one of the big interesting things to watch about her. 
I got really distracted during your long answer there, John, because it took me a while to figure out that you'd said revolution in the streets and not revolution in the sheets. <laughs> I was like, hey, revolution in the sheets? What? What are you talking about? Uh, I was with you on I'm, the other hand. I'm in favor of both. <laughs> I mean, can I, this is a little bit, uh, t- I don't know about tangential, but it's this question that I was left wondering about with Warren. So, and it's true about Bernie too. They're both running on a, a liberal populist platform, I would argue, right? And I mean, to some degree, I realize these labels are not terribly useful. But what I mean by that is to make a big argument about inequality in America and structure and saying, like, most people are getting screwed. Yes, the system is rigged. There's a line in um, Warren's book where President Obama is talking about the influence of money in politics in a speech. And Warren – and he says, yeah, it's a problem, but the system isn't rigged. And she says, like, no, President Obama, it is rigged. And Sanders uses that – that phrase all the time. So does Donald Trump. So they're like meeting on that ground. And is that the best way that Democrats should go forward against Trump, essentially to say like, yes, all these people who feel like they're being screwed in some way, like you're right. The problem is Trump hasn't actually like given you economic benefits. And also he's misdirected your anger at immigrants by, you know, telling you they're taking your jobs and then misdirected your anger at this like liberal intelligentsia as opposed to the corporate robber barons who are like, you know, eating your lunch and your breakfast and your dinner. Like, will that work? Or are you better off with someone like Joe Biden who's going to come along and say, Trump is an aberration. We just need to get back to what's good at America. We Mm -hmm. don't really need to change very much here. So as a a sort of sub-follow-up of that, Emily, do you think that that as long as both Sanders and Warren are in the race, that that intrinsically – they cannot overcome a Biden because because there is a the constituency which is which which they represent uh, is just going to be divided and that there's one of them going to have to eventually drop out. One of them the is one. one of the. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't. Right. Yes. I think they are rivals for each other's votes. There are other parts of the Democratic electorate that could come over to them. Right. So like right now, Biden's support is really strong with African-American voters. Um, But when we were talking about this with Nicole Hannah-Jones a few weeks ago, she correctly said that what you see with African-American voters is they're very practically minded. And they didn't go over to Obama when he was running against Hillary Clinton until they really thought he could win. So there are other parts of the constituency that are up for grabs. But yeah, I do think that eventually Eventually, it's going to be either Sanders or Warren and not both of them. Okay. Last last question on this uh, to, to either of you. The first debate is next week, I think. Mm-hmm. Or is it this week? Next week. There are soon, two really next soon. week. Next week. Yeah, well, there have And been. so Warren is, a, is essentially in a debate where she is the only one of the real front runners in that group, whereas the, I think the other, the other one has Biden and Sanders and, and Buttigieg Harris. And, mm-hmm. and Harris. Does she benefit from being alone or is she hurt Mm -hmm. by being alone? John, what do you think? (laughs) Since I've been spent time writing the book, I'm basically like all theories make no sense because you spend all the time going back and looking at everybody's theories in the moment about various campaigns. And And they're all wrong. Everybody's always wrong. Anyway, (laughs) with that caveat, I mean, I think in these first debates, what you do, especially if you're a person on the rise, is uh, these are speeches in parallel. 
These aren't debates. So uh, it's a moment. Everybody turns their head. They're looking at the TV. Every candidate gets a chance to do their elevator pitch. And so that's that's what it is. And so it doesn't, I don't think, particularly matter what night you're on or who you're who you're against. Yes, there might be some moments in which a, f- a fancy-footed candidate can really seize the, the moment and grab something that gets replayed over and over, and that's going to be great for them. But I don't think it's on the attack thing. I think it's a... It's an opportunity to look winning, given a set of circumstances. But mostly, they all undoubtedly are preparing their, like, elevator pitch. Then I think you want to give your elevator pitch based on the incredibly short attention span of the viewers, the people on Twitter, and the journalists who seem to care only about what happens on Twitter. You better do it in the first 20 minutes. Because, A, that's where people pay attention. B, it's what then gets circulated on Twitter and blots out whatever happens afterwards. And it's what um, television producers can put in the rack so that when the debate's over, they have a clip to go to right away. Whereas something that happens later in the debate, it's a little bit more nervous-making to get that to happen. Because uh, it's closer to the period of time where the, the people are going to be on TV talking and they need to have something they can go to. So, um, you know, do it early and uh, don't worry about the other candidates. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Kyle Kashuv was a survivor, is a survivor of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, the Parkland shooting. He also turned to activism 
but to conservative activism. A gun rights supporter, he became the public face of that tragedy on the right, contra David Hogg and the other survivor activists. Kashuv went out to speak about how this this uh, made him believe ever more firmly that gun rights were important and that teachers need to protect themselves. He built a social media following of 300,000 people. He became a high school outreach head for the conservative group Turning Points. And he was admitted to Harvard, admitted to Harvard after writing an essay, in fact, about this activism of his. His admission was rescinded last week, or rescinded maybe a couple of weeks ago, after the Huffington Post published digital comments, both texts and then Google chats Doc. that uh, he had, Google Docs, that he had shared with other students in a relatively, not in a kind of public social media way, but in a more private space, but still with other people, of him using the N-word over and over and over in, in very offensive kinds of ways. Uh, he apologized to Harvard for this, although it was sort of more measured in his apology publicly. But the rescission, the re revocation of his admission has stood and it's provoked outrage on the right and some sober chin stroking on the left. So, Emily, was this the right move on Harvard's part? So I'm really torn about that part of the story. I could argue – I mean, I look, I think that when you make racist comments, you're um, – that's – obviously like unacceptable and wrong and particularly hurtful to some of the students you may be you'll be going to school with and i can understand why harvard wanted to have a kind of no um, answer to whether they still wanted him to come i also think it's important to remember that admission to harvard is a big privilege like the notion that Kashuv is, you know, being terribly punished in some way seems off to me. Like taking away a huge privilege is different from a punishment. At the same time, these were relatively private kind of like ridiculous, inane comments by a 16-year-old online. And my own teenagers tell me that like kids say all kinds of stupid shit online in these like semi-private settings and i'm i'm nervous about a precedent in which we hold it against them this like dumb and hurtful stuff they do as teenagers i i just want to have more space for them to be able to screw up without it coming back to bite them in this way. So about that individual decisions of Harvard's, I feel really torn. The way this is played out in the debate, you know, with the sort of conservative liberal split over it, that's another issue. But like just on this question, I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Well, first of all, I have very complex feelings, which are sort of align with yours. There's no right to a Harvard admission. But also Harvard admission is not so sacred that you can't have imperfect people in that class. Mm -hmm. Like I was in a class at Harvard. It was filled with dumbos and sinners and assholes. Like there were plenty of them who I'm sure had done whatever the equivalent of what Kyle Kashuv did in his life. And of course, what he did was grotesque and wrong and ignorant and shameful. But he was a 16-year-old boy. And 16-year-old boys are definitionally the worst. Like that, if you want to pick out who's likely to do the worst thing and what, what point in their life, it's going to be a 16-year-old boy. They are impulsive. And, you know, this was something that was that predated his admission. And I also don't like the precedent that it sets that to narc people out. Like the only reason this ended up being shared with Harvard is that he is a high profile person. Had he been just a random kid who had not gone on to a conservative activism, he probably wouldn't have gotten into Harvard, I suppose. He became a target. 
And I do not like the idea that that you can be held up and later in life for something you've done, you know, when you're effectively a private citizen, which was wrong. What he did was wrong. It was wrong. But the 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 shame of that exposure and the embarrassment of that and him having to face publicly what he had said is really significant. And I don't know that then it then requires the double whammy of him losing his admission and probably losing all of his college admissions uh, for this year mm-hmm. for that. I just don't think it's I don't think it's there. On the other hand, on the other hand, and finally, on like on the seventh hand, <laughs> um, on the seventh hand, there is something not good about this idea of forgiveness basically being allowed for kind of white privileged people. And and when you think about all the the black and brown children whose one crime cost them their life as a productive citizen because they end up with a criminal record or whatever it is, or who are shot by a cop because they've made one mistake and how they have approached that cop. It does make you think like, well, like, why are we focusing so much on, on the need for forgiveness for this particular child? So I don't know. I, I, I'm conflicted. Yes. That well, is a good I, thing to get hung up on. Yeah. Well, this is one of those issues where, you, yeah, it does feel like you go full octopus on, uh, you know, one hand, one hand, one hand, one hand, one hand. Um, I guess a couple of feelings. One of the reasons is the reason people are focused on this one privileged uh, person, um, uh, which immediately would have somebody respond by saying, well, he wasn't privileged because, you know, when you're in a tragedy um, like the Parkland shooting, that's not, you know, that's a privilege nobody would want, Um, is that it touches on all of these massive public roiling debates we're having. And so it's a stand-in for all these conversations about free speech, about privilege, about race, um, about forgiveness. Um, I would add to your point, David, about the awfulness of teenage boys, uh, my son not included, of course, um, is our brain chemistry is is actually, and the development of our brains is hasn't happened yet. So there's a reason this is brain, so there's, because it's not all in your moral control as a 16-year-old. And these are awful and objectionable things that he did. But um, when we talk about uh, what responsibility we have as human beings, for a 16-year-old boy, they, uh, you know, it's obviously different for every boy, but they don't have the, the brain isn't wired up yet to to have the executive function come in and control those awful, objectionable, sinful impulses. So there's, that is added into the mix. But uh, the question is why Harvard has to be the agent of moral formation in American life, you know, so that in other words, can you believe that um, forgiveness and um, and moral learning is crucial and important for all of us, but is it really Harvard's job because it has other interests? And so couldn't a person get moral formation from um, uh, learning here without it being somehow Harvard's responsibility. Uh, And I don't know what the answer to that is. But the other thing is, was there, I guess if you were looking at the specifics of the case, which is almost impossible because everything is fraught with a larger societal importance. But, you know, the, I, I think one of the things that Harvard said was that there, there, or, or maybe this is a comment, but if the idea, the argument that he made was, I said these are horrible interjectual things, then the shooting changed my, my view of the world and I'm much more empathetic and much more, and I understand the error of my ways, which is, by the way, totally a plausible thing, given all that stuff I said about brain chemistry. Is it fair to then evaluate his apology slash non-apology for those remarks 
in that context or is Harvard is it is it already sort of once you've said it that's it because it did seem that his response to the original questioning about this did not match uh, what what one might expect from a person who had gone through the journey that he claimed to have gone through um, you mean now, you this thought his apology was insufficient I'm, I'm thank just... you yes that's yes okay. you're trying to put it in actual <laughs> you're trying to put it in actual yeah. human language yes and and is that even a fair criteria um well, well uh, if the apology is insufficient, I mean, there was there, the one thing that made me least sympathetic to him was a claim from one of his classmates that he had used his high-profile platform, post-shooting platform, to actually harass and, in some ways, bully classmates and set internet hordes against them. I didn't like that, like the idea that that he had become an activist, which is great, and he for working for a cause that he believed in, and that's great, and and. But you would have hoped that if he had learned the lessons that he claimed to have learned, that he wouldn't then be a bully. And it sounded like from some of his classmates that he was a bully. Can I, can I take a to- totally 13-second tan- tangent about something completely off topic, I which is the wait. most amazing fact? The most amazing fact in this whole story is his GPA. His GPA was like 53 Oh my god! What the fuck is going on? It's those like, AP what? classes. It's like you get that extra is GPA. Bullshit. It's weird. That is nonsense. Like especially as a conservative, if you're a conservative, it's like oh, standards have been degraded. Let's get back to, to truth and advertising. Let's 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 stop with this uh, you know participation trophy thing. That is just ridiculous. I got 5. hung up 3? on it. <laughs> okay. Five point three. That right, nothing, right. Like five point three is not even like if you keep it within four, okay. Like I'm, I'm like, all right, okay. You know, I understand AP maybe gets you a four point five if everything's an AP. Five point three. What is that? Can okay. I ask this? I got hung up on a different fact, John. You go ahead. Well, you and and you can ignore this and go to your different fact. But could Harvard have? I realize this is maybe a tiny little corner of this conversation, but could Harvard have recognizing that this was likely to go? Big and huge, and 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 recognizing the collateral damage that Harvard is now d- done because forever, well, or might do, could they have tried to manage this and say, "Look, this is going to be. This is we cannot accept you, but uh, we don't want to turn. We don't want to turn the whole world uh, uh, focus on you and this thing you did, and 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 have you forever be uh, tattooed with with this sanction." But he um, was the one who started talking who about released it, John. It. Yeah, he's the one yeah, who released it. Yeah, Harvard doesn't right. want to comment on it at all. He was the one yeah. who decided to turn himself into a cause celeb. And what I was going to say that I keep stumbling on in this discussion is that conservatives, you know, people like I think Ben Shapiro, David Brooks in a column in the New York Times, they're the ones who seem so upset. And and this notion that like Harvard is not forgiving and that is like oh, David French made this argument. That is a demonstration of the um, receding of Christianity in our culture that like it would be if the culture and Harvard were infused with Christian values, they would forgive like First of all, I find that really unpersuasive, and Ezra Klein did a good job of kind of eviscerating that argument on Twitter by just saying, look, if you look at the parts of the country where the criminal justice system is the harshest and people use the death penalty, they're the places with the highest rates of evangelical participation and, like, let's think through this disconnect, which goes back to your point about, you know, who is forgiveness for and do we Mm -hmm. uh, think about this, like, 
fairly privileged white kid in a way and wanting to give him a break in a way that we fail to extend Mm -hmm. to poor kids everywhere. So there's that. But then also Turning Point, which is this um, right-wing organization, they dumped him immediately, like way before Harvard did. So if it's all about forgiveness and like we're supposed to look past what you did when you're 16, it seems like this organization that has become kind of totemic on campuses as um, a force of conservative values, like they need to be looking in the mirror. So a couple of other points. One is there's this, you know, this occasional claim, oh, this happened to him because he was a conservative, which clearly seems absolutely false in the sense that he was admitted to Harvard because he was a conservative. That's why he, his high profile, he wrote his essay about his conservative activism. Harvard loves getting in conservative kids who are, you know, really smart. It's like it, it makes, there's nothing that makes Bill Fitzsimmons at the Dean of Admissions happier than that. And so, so I think that, and that by the way, that's not claim, a like, terrible thing. No, it's no, good. it's fine. It's like yeah. it's good. It's, 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 it's yeah. Better. Yeah. No, I just want to make uh, sure that people didn't think uh, that that's, that you were, you were saying that's a bad thing. Um, I do, I, 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 I do, am like this conservative victimization is constantly being victimized in the world is so weird. And they, Harvard, Harvard has this totemic quality. Conservatives loathe the ivory tower, but they're obsessed with it. They say it's totally stupid, yet they're, they, they express how validated they are by participation, membership in, in a place like Harvard. Um, and then this, this, you know, this kind of over excessive wounded feeling of woundedness and feeling of victimization it's so the feeling of victimization is so out of proportion with the actual suffering that conservatives are enduring in the culture particularly people in in elite systems it's really it's a very unattractive victimization Un- unearned victimization uh, or lightly earned victimization is not an attractive quality. Well, also, of course, five point three. Like it's like that hotel in Dubai. They gave itself seven seven yeah. stars. There was that hotel that said it was a seven star hotel. And it's like you can't be a seven star hotel. This uh, the, 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 it only goes up to five. You can't just change the the, right. the scale. But, you, but part of this larger argument, it's like giving is, yourself is, five Michelin stars. You can't. Oh it's part not possible. This. Part of this argument, as you obviously know, and the reason it's gotten so big and gone beyond the actual facts of the case is that conservatives obviously see everything you just said could come from a conservative talking about the left. And that their argument, of course, is that on the left, there is excessive uh, victimization and umbrage taking and everything is about race and gender. And you can't everything just immediately turns into a super hypercharged uh, act of victimization on the left. And so yeah. left, they're allowed to be this one way, but on the right, we're not. And so this is a, seen as a kind of public rebalancing fight, I think, whether it's in, it, whether that's the avowed reason that these that this debate's happening or it's just the energy behind it. Part of the thing is that people feel just as violently about the victimization on the left as you just articulated about on the right. Right. And also, it is important to remember, conservative students are outnumbered on many campuses, right? Like, they really do feel embattled and, like, they can't say everything they want to say or that they're judged by their classmates for their political and sometimes their religious views. Like, that is a real feeling. It's not made up. And it is a problem that college campuses are grappling with. So, you know, writ large, conservatives have lots and lots of power in the world right now. But if you are a college student at one of these selective universities, or if you care about all the intellectual life and learning and culture that comes out of these institutions, like you do have a real beef. And let's go to cocktail chatter. 
when you're sitting in a nine-star hotel having a $47 (laughs) cocktail, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Uh, well, actually, my, my chatter is about people who can't get to a nine-star hotel or even uh, their own home. Um, in the last few years, I've been on the board of Covenant House, which takes which helps homeless youth, teenagers, kids who are, for a variety of reasons, either they're running away from trafficking or gangs or their parents have kicked them out kicked them out of the house because they're LGBTQ or because they're pregnant or whatever. 33,000 of these uh, kids experience homelessness in New York alone, and they're rebuilding their location shelter in New York. And in one of the things that's been the most, and it just kicked off today, which is why I'm talking about it, The one of the most amazing things about being involved in it for me has been seeing... Um, well, I guess I'll just tell a story very quickly. Kevin Ryan, who's the CEO and president of it, was talking to... Um, Atlas Obscure I, investor Kevin Ryan. Oh, yeah? By the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. A kid... Um, great. Yeah. I, I was talking to a kid who said, you know, and said, what's your... What, what, what do you want for the future? Um, and um, this young person said, I, I want to be seen. Um, and it's for me and for Kevin, it was. it's a very powerful story about... The benefit of just being seen when you're homeless um, and what that can do to fundamentally change a life, like just that little switch of being seen, being recognized, taking notice of homeless teenage kids. When they come to Covenant House, it's not just a roof over their head. They get medical care and job training and psychological care and the whole range of things. And finally, they can exhale and it turns out they, you know, can flower just by being seen. And so, anyway, if anybody's interested in the work they do, just go to um, covenanthouse.org and, and even maybe help them with their, uh, with, their New York, um, uh, with their New York building. Emily, what is your chatter? So, we're getting toward the end of the Supreme Court season, and a case came down this week about racial Are they going to renew it? In- Are they going to renew it? Are they going to get another season? Because <laughs> I feel like it's been not a really be great season, if it and was I canceled think, actually. Yeah, they cancel it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Netflix might pick right. it up. Or They're something. way beyond the rule of like five or six seasons that all the best shows yeah. really try to stick to. So yeah, yeah. Have it's a kind of like Days there. of Our Lives now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly, going on forever. But in any case, they are still with us. And so this case is about Virginia and whether Virginia's state legislature, whether the map was gerrymandered in a way that discriminated against black people by packing them into districts, you know, with racial gerrymandering. There's this question of like, do you have um, two? Are you packing all the black voters into a few districts so that you have concentrated their political power and thus they can only affect a small number of seats. Um, Another problem is if you spread them out too thinly, then you're not allowing them to elect any of the politicians of their choice. But anyway, this case was the voters who said that they were being racially discriminated against one and then the appeal on behalf of Virginia, um, the attorney general of Virginia chose not to appeal. So in other words, he was on the side of the African-American voters effectively. So then the Virginia House decided to appeal anyway. And this was basically the Republicans stepping in for the state to make sure that this case would be heard. The Supreme Court, in a decision by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but um, has this very weird alignment on her side were Kagan and Sotomayor, like that's a normal liberal alliance, but then Gorsuch and Thomas are the five, the, the rest of that five justice majority. 
Anyway, they all said, hey, Virginia House, you don't have standing. You can't be the ones to bring this case. And so this map is going to, the redrawn map is going to stand. So politically speaking, it's a decision that has good ramifications for Democrats in Virginia. It's very specific to this state since the standing ruling is not usually the issue in gerrymandering cases. And it also has nothing to do with the upcoming decisions about political gerrymandering, which are going to be much more, I think, broad and sweeping and matter for, you know, the whole country. But I really have a question about this standing. I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the notion that you can have a decision and the attorney general and governor can decide not to appeal and then effectively like nobody gets to appeal on behalf of the state. I get it. I get why that would be the rule, but it just seems like too rigid and formal to me. Anyway, that's my chatter. My chatter is about a fascinating story in the Atlantic by William Langavisha. William Langavisha, if you know him, is the preeminent chronicler of disasters, particularly air disasters. But he writes often meticulous, uh, well, after the fact, reconstructions of, of uh, ferry sinkings or airplane crashes. And he, it's, they're grueling to read and horrible and if you were like me, a kind of uh, obsessed in a, in a horrified uh, magnetic, magnetic way with uh, airline disasters, um, you, he, he's like the, your number one read. Anyway, he has written a piece called What Really Happened to Malaysia's Missing Airplane? And it's about the disappearance of Flight 370, of course, which happened five years ago, which has not been solved, I say with air quotes. But Langavisha goes through exactly what we know and why we know it and what the evidence shows. And uh, I'm spoiler, spoiler alert, you could turn off now if you don't want to hear what the, the, his conclusion is, but he makes this amazing conclusion about that basically we know that the pilot did it. We are, we, it's very clear that this is a, an act of, of mass murder and suicide by the pilot, and we know how he did it. It's just we don't have the final evidence because of where he crashed the plane and, and the speed at which it, the plane hit the water and thus, you know, exploded the plane and destroyed it and, and why we may never have the final dispositive evidence, but there's so much evidence. And it's about how the Malaysian authorities in particular covered up that evidence, didn't want it to become public and for corrupt and venal reasons, just, just uh, would not allow the truth to come out. It's a very brilliant and terrible story. So I recommend it strongly in the Atlantic. Uh, and then of course we have listener chatter. We have a bunch of great listener chatter. And I want to mention one that came from Tevis Jacobs, who's a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He's uh, trying to celebrate his new son's birthday. And he's got this idea of using a pinhole camera to capture the daily passage of the sun over a period of six months. And Tevis Jacobs sends us a link to a guy named Justin Quinnell, who has a whole website devoted to pinhole photography. And the photographs that Justin Quinnell takes of the sun the sun's passage in the sky are incredible. I just cannot emphasize enough how beautiful and weird these photos are. So if you get a chance to check out Justin Quinnell's site, do it. They're gorgeous. And I think you can do pinhole cameras or something you can do yourself. So so maybe it'll, you'll, you'll create beautiful photos too. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher's Bridget Dunlap, who's about to move to Chicago, but is going to remain our researcher so 
have a good move, Bridget. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Alan Peng, Danielle Hewitt, Ryan McAvoy engineered the show today in New York, New Haven, oh, New York, D.C. and New Haven, respectively. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. You should come to our show in Toronto on Wednesday, July 10th. We would love to see you there. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. We can't wait to hang out with you, dear Canadian pals of ours. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I wasn't really interested in your answer. Sorry. Because we're here to talk about other things, not to talk about you. I feel like you preserve you? a good illusion of being interested every week. I'm not sure you should burst that bubble. Maybe I know, I, my God. Well, this week I'm not. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't really want the response. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Uh, so, <laughs> Peter Paul Amandjoy got mun- nuts. Peter Paul um, Mounds don't. Mounds Why do they call don't? it Peter Paul? Peter I don't, Paul. Do they? It yeah, wasn't it was Peter Paul Amandjoy got nuts. Peter Paul Mounds don't. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't hear. I didn't remember the Peter Paul part. Yeah, um, but what is Peter, is Peter I, Paul I the brand? Uh, I don't know. It's a nod to some of the apostles. I don't know. Someone will write huh. and explain this mystery of the 1980s to us. Quickly, Mounds or Almond Joy? Emily. I hate them both. John. They're the Halloween candy I, I always gave away. I couldn't agree more. Mounds. Almond Joy's gross. Mounds are good. Um, it's just it's a milk dark chocolate thing and the 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 coconut in the almond joy gets a little dried out for some reason, whereas the Mounds coconut is very moist and delicious. It's a little too sweet, like all. The problem is the coconut. Coconut involved in anything is a disaster. Really? You don't like it at all? Strong disagree. I like it in some things, but not. That is way too much coconut for me. You know where I like it? I like it inside the shell, up in the tree. (laughs) Wow, Uh, that's a strong opinion. I love coconut. Coconut cake. Make me a coconut cake oh. for my birthday. I'm very happy. Coconut cream pie. Oh, that is a good. Coconut Do you cream eat pie. cake? Oh my not god! Not on your birthday, and when, not when sure. pressured by the social obligation of you sure. know. The Although I don't, only when it's like really moist and homemade. I don't like cake nearly as much as I like cookies. You don't like cookies? Mm, yeah. No, I love cookies. Cookies. Okay, I was going to say cookies are my what? dessert choice. Yeah. No, I will always have a, a cookie. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Emily's Elizabeth Warren story. We've already talked about it substantively, but I think people like to go behind the scenes. So, Emily, you're going to tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes. So, uh, what was she like? Was she fun to hang out with? Did she? She likes human? tea. Did she did likes you, tea? She always did you? Tea. Yeah. Did you feel competition from the New Yorker, which was working on a story at the same time? I uh, did. Did you feel like you made a human connection with her? Did you feel like you had to actually learn about those policies or did you just pretend to learn about them? Those are some of my questions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I (laughs) did feel like I made a human connection with her. I may be fooling myself because I wanted to think that. But so when I got assigned this profile, Warren was like nowhere in the polls, which I liked that because it made it all feel kind of low stakes. And when I met her for the first time. I went to her house in Cambridge. We had an off-the-record conversation, which I then succeeded in kind of transporting back onto the record, which was very helpful to me. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.